This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I am Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for September 9th, episode 2763. Today's show is brought to you by Horseware. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? never stop learning, you never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse. Exciting, knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. And welcome back, Mary. For those who are unfamiliar, Mary Kitzmiller stops by here the second Thursday of every month, where we get to sit back and geek out on all things training. Woohoo! Yay! Now, this morning, before we got started, as usual, you were helping your Belgian Malinois. Did I say that right? Yes. Helping her get settled in for the long, long, long 90 minutes that you need to have reasonable quiet <laughs> in your cabin. <laughs> Yes. Now, and the acoustics in here are not conducive to a rowdy Malinois. No, they're not. And a podcast so, at the same time. Familiarize us quickly with who Echo is, and, and then we'll get on to how she is influencing today's topics. Well, I decided with everything in my life that I needed more utter chaos and challenge. So I got a Belgian Malinois. Um, but actually, she's amazing. So I... Um, I got Echo, oh gosh, I don't remember how many months ago it was. She's seven months old now, and I got her when she's, so was it just three months ago? Um, so she's a seven-month-old Belgian Malinois that I got. I wanted a dog that could kind of be my ranch dog and I could take with me to shows, and I wanted a dog that had a protective instinct, which, oh my gosh, do these dogs have that? That I travel alone, I go to horse shows. I remember I was in a, in a show that was in um, a part of San Antonio that, you know, was a little, you know, risky to be alone. And I, because I was driving my big Dodge Dooley around, I had to park in the back uh, parking lot of my hotel. And being at a horse show, you get out, you get back at all hours of the night. And I just remember walking from the back dark parking lot to my hotel room, like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is risky. I had my head on a swivel and, and so that was right before I got her. Um, but if you know anything about a Belgian Malinois, you know that they are like high energy. They make border collies look super chill. Um, and they also call them Maligators. And Echo has this impressive row of velociraptor teeth. And it's like their favorite pastime. It's like, what can I puncture with my teeth? Um, 
I actually had Malinois owners. I'm in a couple Facebook groups for the breed. And anytime someone's like, I'm getting a new male puppy. Do you have any advice? Everyone's like, have band-aids handy because there will be blood. <laughs> I'm like, that's the dog for me. Um, but she's been wonderful. But she has definitely been a crash course for me in dog training. And I, I can never understand. I've had people tell me over the years, oh, well, you're a horse trainer. So you must just really understand dog training. I'm like, let's see, a predator versus prey animal. Those are totally the same thing. Now, a lot of training program protocols are the same, especially in positive reinforcement training. But like, I can't necessarily go lunge Echo if she's a little fresh. We do have our <laughs> version of lunging, but... Like it, it, it is different and, um, you know, and what motivates them is it can often be different than with horses. So I've definitely spent a lot of money and time and, you know, like, okay, how to train dogs. And I picked one of the most challenging breeds in the world to do it with, but it's been really fun. I've actually enjoyed the heck out of it. So she's been an appropriately challenging puppy. Yes. Yes. Because I totally needed challenge in my life. Well, that's true. You do. Anybody who knows Mary knows that Mary needs a little challenge in her life. I get that. I understand it. So how, uh, how is Echo influencing our topics and in particular our training tip? Because we always start with a training tip uh, this month. Because invariably the training tip, what we do first each month, is influenced or inspired by something interesting dramatic or crazy that happened recently in your life. Yeah. And then the funny thing is it's like the auditors get on the same wavelength because the questions that I get always sync up with the thing that was on my mind all week about, Oh, I should talk about this on the show. It's crazy. Um, so yeah. So echo has actually, you know, I, I joke about her, but she's been an amazing dog and, um, you know, my house is not destroyed. Uh, you know, we don't, I, I have not had to cover myself in band-aids. She's been incredible. I've taught her all these cool things. It's been really exciting and fun. And I've been, you know, really proactive and I'm going to do this right. And I've worked with a trainer in person. I've, you know, I've bought all these books and done all these courses and I work with her every day. We go on walks, we do training sessions, lots of enrichment, but we have had a challenge come up. And, um, what has ended up happening? So this breed is very watchful and very protective. And, um, uh, so echo has always been, uh, a little bit odd with strangers. And actually the first night I brought her home, she wouldn't let me touch her. She was like, I hate you. You're not my really? person. Interesting. Oh my God. I've never had a dog. It was like having a baby mountain lion because she was slinking around the room just, um, I got her, she, when I got her, they, uh, the breeder, they had started her shots, but they were kind of late about it and had really not done any socializing with her. And she was or the, that period where you need to get them out and socialize them, it was closing. And so she had just never been out and never experienced strangers. So here I am, I swoop her up and take her to a new place. Like, this is your home now. I actually had to get a comforter off my bed and throw it on the floor. And I just ignored her and I laid on the comforter and watched TV. And, and the reason I got the comforter out is because I knew she wanted to lay down. I have hardwood floors and she would try to lay on the dog beds I had sprinkled about 
but she just wasn't comfortable. Like she just didn't feel like she could sit down and relax. So I just got the biggest, fluffiest goose down comforter I could through it, spread it out on the floor. And then I just laid on the floor and watched TV and she finally slinked over to me. And I was able to, you know, just rub her right between my eyes and then she melted right between her eyes and she melted. She was like, okay, it's okay. And she got attached to me right away. Uh, so I did lots of really careful socializing. I took her to the local pet classes over six weeks to do an obedience course and she did great. Um, you know, she'd still be wary of a few people. She didn't like men in particular, you know, she'd bark at a few people here and there, but you know, nothing serious. Um, so then I had her to where I'm taking her to TSC. She's been to Lowe's. I take her to the park every day and, um, I had taken her to first Monday trade days in Canton, which is this huge, incredible flea market in Texas. And she walked with me through the crowds of people. Just amazing. Like made me look like a million bucks. Um, (laughs) Made me look like the best dog trainer ever. Well, I was gone at a show for a few weeks and I didn't think she was ready to go to a horse show. So I boarded her with my trainer That's not unusual. I've done that a few times with her. Came back and then thought, oh, let's go to TSC. And she was like, everybody at TSC. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, I haven't taken you out in a couple weeks. So I I guess, you know, this is okay. This is fine. So I took her out of TSC before we scared the living daylights out of everyone. Um, And then the next day, I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the local, the local pet stores where I did all of her obedience classes. And so she's always been really good in there because she's gone in there many times and just gotten tons of treats and praise. And so she goes in there and she's usually incredible. So the next morning, I'm like, let's go into the pet sense store and, um, you know, we'll get you some treats and just kind of let's go someplace you love. And you've had lots of reinforcement there. (laughs) And she comes in the door, immediately starts barking her head off at everybody. So usually if, if I can tell she's kind of over threshold, I take her to the very back of the store, like, Hey, it's quiet back here. Let's get your focus. And then she's amazing. So I took her to the back of the store and she's better, and then we start walking down an aisle, and she just loses her mind, just barking, 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 and she clearly sees something at the end of the aisle. The aisle is empty. There's nobody there, and she sees something at the end of the aisle, and she's barking, and I'm like, what is going on? There is a picture of a cat at the end of the aisle on this store display, and she saw the picture of the cat and lost her mind. Now, she lives with cats, but for some reason, the picture of the cat like sent her into a tizzy. So now I'm like, what the heck do I do? I got this dog so I could take her with me. And what I realized was going on is she's at the age, um, puppies go through what's called fear periods. And she went with her through her first one right after I got her. And I believe we're in a second one. And it can happen to where your dog's really good and it's really trained and it's really socialized. And then all of a sudden something random and minute scares the living daylights out of them. And if you're a horse owner, you do understand uh, this, (laughs) this feeling of why is all of a sudden this the thing you're afraid of? So anyway, how does that all relate to horse training? Um, What I've been doing to conquer it is, first of all, I understand that we're in this fear period and it's just going to happen. So I'm not really pressuring her to go into any stores. But during our morning walks in the park, 
um, we come across people. And the good thing about the park is I can create as much distance as I need to between me and other people. Ah, so I can, so she's, yeah. she's being exposed, but not exposed to the point of over threshold. Whereas in a, an exactly. enclosed building, you don't have much of a choice. Got it. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if, if I need to, I could take her a hundred feet away from someone, she could still see them, but you know, we're not in any danger of her being too close to someone. Um, and it's, yeah, it keeps her under threshold. And this is important with horses as well. Um, there, a, a horse, an animal cannot learn when they're over aroused, when they're over that threshold. And what I mean by over threshold is they go from, this area where they can still accept information and learn how to get through it to I'm in fight flight right now. I'm, I'm in complete panic. I'm just worried about saving my own life. And, um, when they're in that phase, the only thing you can do is just try to manage it. You cannot train them through it. Um, you just try to stay safe, try to keep them safe. And you want to try to figure out how do I get them back down? Because that's where we can start getting information and figuring out, you know, how to manage this. So it's important to recognize that with horses as well. And um, so um, with a with a dog, and this is also true with horses. That is, she's she's barking not because she's aggressive. She's barking because she's afraid. And you know, barking is one of her is is her defense. Like get away, get away, be, get away, get away. Get away. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, whereas so, a horse might spook or run away. Yes. And, and I yeah. really think that, um, with horses, they will display what we think is aggressive behavior. And I really classify it as defensive. For instance, um, I've seen a number of trainers, uh, they'll get on Facebook and say, my Mustang charges me. My, you know, I got in the pen with my Mustang to try to get the first touch and my Mustang charged me. And you'll see loads of people say, you need to move his feet and show him his bus and get his respect. And, um, okay. But the thing is the horse, in my opinion, just in my experience, having witnessed this, having experienced it myself, um, I do nine times out of 10, I've seen, I've encountered one horse in my life that I believed this is aggression. He wants to murder me. Um, and that was a very special case. Uh, (laughs) but most cases, especially with Mustangs, the horse is in a small pen and you come in the pen and without realizing it, you put that animal over threshold. For some horses, you being in the pen with him is too much. And he kind of takes stock of his surroundings. He realizes fence is too high to jump and I can't run. So I'm going to look as big and scary and come at you to get you to go away from me. It's not I'm the herd leader or it's not I want to I want to taste your blood. It is... I have nothing else. I, my flight is not available to me, so I got to do something else to get you away. So in my opinion, that's less aggression and more um, defense. I, I want you away. This is the only option you've given me to do it. And so a lot of times with those horses, if you find a bigger pen or you use less energy um, or even work with them from the other side of the pen, they kind of go, oh, okay, this is fine. And... Uh, so, you know, it's the same with, with Echo. I can, you know, create more distance so she can go, oh, okay, 
I can listen to you because I don't feel like I'm too close to other people. And it can be tempting, especially, you know, you're feeling the anxiety of your dog barking and you're in public. She's chasing my cat right now. I don't know if you can hear her. Um, uh, you know, I've got anxiety, I've got embarrassment and you, it can be tempting to like punish your dog for barking, maybe, you know, jerk on the leash or give him a stern word or something to like, I just want the barking to stop. I want and and the problem with the punishing side of that is your dog is barking, not because they want to be a jerk because they're scared. And so if they're scared and anxious and then you do something that is going to up that anxiety, the next time they encounter the scary thing, they're going to be really anxious and the behavior is going to intensify. And then the behavior can go from defensive to actual aggression. You can actually bring it to that place. And this is the same with horses. Um, when we were talking earlier, the example I used, I see people who will be riding a horse around and the horse is really high headed and the horse tosses its head in the air. And I've seen people seesaw the reins or jerk on the bit to try to stop their horse from raising their head. Cause that that's unwanted behavior. They don't want the horse to do that. And they think if they jerk on the horse and make him feel uncomfortable, he will stop. Well, I don't, that's that's very ineffective in my opinion. Uh, You would have to be so punishing and so effective and good, well-timed in your punishment that the horse never wants to toss their head again. And it, it just, I've never really seen it work in my opinion. Um, And you have to think about why, where is this coming from? The horse is not tossing his head so that he ruins your class um, or, you know, just to annoy you. Um, I've never seen a completely relaxed, comfortable, chilled out horse throw his head in the air. It's almost always an escape. It's anxiety. It's fear. It could be pain and discomfort. Maybe he needs his teeth done. Maybe his back hurts. You don't know. Um, but it's almost always, I'm trying to escape. I don't feel right. I'm going to throw my head in the air. And so if you respond to that by making them feel more uncomfortable and jerking on them or trying to pull their head down or seesaw their head down or tie their head down with some piece of equipment, that horse is going to go, now I'm really scared. Now I know I had a reason to try to escape this. And they're going to try to escape it even harder. And that's where you see problems develop like um, rearing and even flipping over and and. Every horse that I've seen that flips over with the rider is it's a learned behavior or the horse has a severe mental defect, but it's, it's usually always a learned behavior. A horse is not going to try to hurt himself unless he really, really wants to escape, um, pressure or pain. Um, and so, you know, with the rearing and, and especially the flipping over, it, it becomes like this arms race. The horse throws his head in the air, we get a harsher bit. The horse throws his head even more. We maybe I'm going to get a tight martingale or draw reins or something, or I'm going to really work on that bit and try to get him to put his head down. So then he starts popping up in the front, you know, in the front end of now I really want to get away from this. And then he starts rearing. And each time the rider responds by pulling harder, jerking more, changing equipment, um, getting after the horse, punishing the horse and pretty soon the horse is like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to just do whatever I can to get you off my back right now. And they flip over. Um, so 
I've seen this happen so many times that I just, I just know in my heart that in, in a lot of these cases, punishment, it's just ineffective. If nothing else, it's just, it just is not the thing to work. So, you know, well, what do you do? So with my dog that's barking and I don't want her to bark, I know that if I jerk on her, punish her, um, it's just going to get worse and worse. And then it can become a real, real big problem. So we, how you can kind of flip the script on this is thinking of in terms of, okay, what do I want to happen? And, you know, I'm, I'm focused on what I don't want to happen. I don't want her to bark. It's embarrassing. It's scary. It's, you know, um, it's just not pleasant. Um, and I can tell she's scared. So I don't, I don't want her to be scared. So what do I want to happen instead? Well, when a stranger approaches and, uh, maybe I want to talk to someone who I encounter on our walk. I would like Echo to sit by my side. So, okay, that's a behavior we can start doing. Um, I would like Echo to put her attention on me. and Because if she's looking at me and focused on me, then she's less likely to be worried about the stranger next to us and less likely to start barking. And I want her to be calm. So these are behaviors that we can teach and we can mark and we can reward. Um, so that's what I started doing with her on the walks. Uh, now I know if I'm within a foot of a stranger, she's going to be so overcome with this need to bark and pull on the leash that I, I won't be able to get her attention on me. So anytime I see someone coming like a hundred feet away. I just, you know, I just casually take her off, off the path and I'll just start playing games with her. And I won't, you know, won't really focus so much on the person approaching. I'll just start playing the games that we've worked on at home in a controlled environment, like offered attention. Anytime she looks at me, I'm going to use our marker signal, which is the word yes. And I'm going to give her lots of treats. I'm going to ask her to sit. Yes. Give her lots of treats. I'm going to ask her. So I'll just start doing all of the behaviors that she knows and the behaviors that would be nice for her to display when people approach. And what I've started noticing by practicing this, at first I really had to create a lot of distance to even get her attention back on me and to get her to want to work for me. And now I'm able to just give way on the sidewalk like I normally would, just walk off a couple of feet. And what I've started noticing happening is as I leave the sidewalk, she just automatically comes to my side and sits and looks at me. And I didn't ask for it. I didn't have to, you know, try to get her attention and try to, you know, um, you know, get her to sit. She just goes, oh, yeah, this is where we go and sit. And then I look at you. And well, the, it, she's all she's made that jump where she's volunteering yeah. the behavior because she, she anticipates good. Th she sees someone coming. She says, oh, we move off the sidewalk when somebody comes. Good things happen now. So now she's she moving off the sidewalk uh, predicts wonderful things, and she's going to move very quickly towards strangers coming towards me while we walk in the park predicts wonderful things, which, hello! <laughs> exactly. And ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's also known as counter-conditioning. And, and in the very beginning, when she was a little puppy, and I started teaching this to her, and this is very counterintuitive, this counter-conditioning idea, um, before she knew sit and she knew all these things that I could teach her to do, um, anytime we were around a person, I just immediately started shoving food in her mouth. And as a trainer, 
you kind of think, well, doesn't the dog or horse have to be doing something? Don't I have to demand that they do something to get the food? Well, not always. Sometimes you can just be like, hey, there's a person. Here's some food. Hey, there's another person. Here's some more food. Here, have lots of food, lots of treats. So yeah. eventually. Well, and she was, over- when you, we take into account the fact that she was a puppy and yeah. her ability to learn new behaviors is limited. It's kind of like a little baby. You can't talk to a little baby in complete sentences. <laughs> yeah. She didn't have a vocabulary you, yet. <laughs> you can't demand your baby like write you a dissertation. Like right. you're just impressed that they can hold a crayon at mm-hmm. this point. Like he's a genius. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, and, and and plus you know, the dog is going to eventually associate, man, every time I see people, I get a mouthful of cookies. People aren't so bad. Um and so by focusing instead, you know, uh, making, first of all, making it pleasant, making it comfortable, but then, um, focusing on, well, what do I, what are the things I want to see? Because the dog doesn't know. And, and this is true with horses as well. They don't know what is expected of them. They don't know social decorum. They just know, you know, this is uncomfortable. This is, this is comfortable. This is where I'm going to find more pressure. This is where I'm going to find less pressure. Um, and I'm going to do whatever I can to be safe. Right. Um, and also, I think a lot of times dogs and horses automatically, especially if they start out in a stressed state mentally, like when you get a brand new puppy who doesn't know you, they're already stressed. Everything new is bad. Everything new, doesn't matter what it is. If it's new, it's bad. And by starting out with, hello, how it doesn't get better than easier than shoving food into a dog's mouth. They're pre-wired to enjoy food, right? So you started out with something the dog is pre-wired to enjoy. Exactly. So you create one thing in their life that's good and new. So you take a teeny tiny baby step by... Walking out the front door and shoving food in. Oh, walking out the door is good because something good happens. And I think we often with horses make that, again, make that mental assumption that something new, this has got to be good, this new thing right here. We're walking into a new pasture. That's got to be good. That's got to be wonderful. It's a beautiful big pasture. Well, to that horse, that might not be good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and the scientific term for, you know, the the reward that you don't have to train them to want is called a primary reinforcer. Their brain is and, and it works so well with horses too. I know feeding your horse treats often has a, a negative connotation in the horse world. And in many times that's rightly so, because a lot of times we do just hand them food whenever and we don't, you know, we, we hand them treat in spite of the fact that they're reaching into our pocket and nipping at our shirt sleeve to get the treat, which can, of course, reinforce unwanted behaviors. And then so feeding the treats often has a very negative, like, you know, you're going to spoil your horse and you're going to make him a pig. It's like, no, you know, I look at that and think, man, that horse really wants that food. He's willing to knock me over and and like rifle my dead body to get food out of my pockets. I can use that motivation to train mm-hmm. good yeah. things. Now, a primary reinforcer, I like I'm glad that you brought that up. A primary reinforcer for a horse who desires safety can being in the company of a familiar pasture mate be used as a primary reinforcer? Can that work? 
I would say so. Yeah. I Probably harder say, to work out, but that would work. Yeah. There's, there's lots of things that, so if you imagine anything that your horse would actively seek out in his environment. So things that he would look for would be food. Of course, um, he would look for comfort in social settings. He wants to be with his herd. Um, he'll probably, you know, look for shelter in, in a store. So some of these things you'd have to get kind of creative to figure out how can I use that? Um, but it is a good idea to find out what, what motivates your horse? What does he want? And that's where you get a lot of, um, a lot of these issues where my horse jigs on the way home from the trail. Well, he wants to go to the barn where it's shelter and it's comfortable and he's familiar or my horse freaks out when I take his buddies, um, out of the pasture to go for a trail ride. Well, he wants to be with his friends. And even if you're, maybe I can't figure out a way to use this in training, still understanding what's motivating him to do the things he's doing is very informative and very helpful because, you know, our animals, horses, dogs, cats, whatever, they're, they do not do things to try to make us look foolish or try to annoy, annoy <laughs> us. That's kind of a human thing. They, they don't have the developed frontal lobe that we do where, you know, we can plot and scheme and what's going to really piss off my little brother. You know, <laughs> we do that. That's, that's, that's us horses and, and dogs. They're, they're looking more for where can I find comfort? Where can I be safe? Where can I get the things I need to survive in life? Um, where can I get away from things that are scary or make scary things go away? And, um, so much of their behavior is that. And if you think of it from that standpoint, it can help bring your, your own anxiety and irritation, um, down. Um, and it's something, you know, as a trainer, I have to work with every day. I'm not immune. Sometimes I get really annoyed uh, with my animals and I'm just like, come on, we've worked on this. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> or either stop it or start it. It's like, okay, we worked on this, do it. Yeah. Or I thought we'd figured this out. Stop doing it. Yes, we all have those moments on a very regular basis uh, with uh, with our animals as well as our children and our significant others. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we've got a couple of really fun listener questions that relate to this topic, and we're going to get to those. But first... We need to hear about what's going on at Horseware, because without Horseware, this episode wouldn't happen. They're our title sponsor. Well, you need to head on over to Horseware.com right now, because they are currently having their end-of-season fly product sale. They have everything from fly sheets to fly turnouts for fly sheets for riding, fly boots, fly masks, everything fly for your horse it's all available right now at special rates for because it's the end of the season. And hello, there's going to be flies next year as well. So stock up now. Go to horseware.com and check them out. All right, it's time for listener questions. Our listeners post questions on the Horse Radio Network Auditor's Facebook page to give Mary ammunition to get creative about all things training. And if you're not an auditor yet, you need to go do that so you can be on that Facebook page. And to do that, you can just go to horsesinthemorning.com and click on the auditor banner. It's usually on the right-hand side, unless you're listening to this podcast in 2025. It may have moved. Just look around. So what is our first question, and who is it from? 
Okay, I'm going to go with a question that really ties into what we've been talking about, and that is from Rita Hansen. And she's an auditor who has this amazing Mustang. And I have to say, she has done incredible work with this horse. Um, she bought the horse that was, you know, the horse was started under saddle and stuff, but the horse, you know, has brought a lot of challenges. And she's really put her own stamp on this horse and done some amazing things. Um, and her question is that she says, I recently went to a show that had a very loud crackly PA system and it really, really bothered Juliet. Um, her first question is why she's not particularly sound sensitive with other things. Does a PA system, um, in particular bother horses? And I'm going to stop the, this is a long question. I'm going to go through the whole thing, but I'm going to stop right there and say yes. And, um, there's actually I just read this in a book last night. I'm reading about reactive dog behavior of why um, a sharp noise like a clicker in training can be so effective over like the word yes when training dogs. And a trainer has put forth a theory that it, it um, connects to the, I think it's pronounced amygdala in the brain. And this part of our brain, it's like the oldest part of the brain. And it, um, whenever we see like, bright flashes of light or sharp sounds, it goes straight to that like primeval part of our brain and our brain processes. It goes there first before it goes to other parts of our brain that are more developed and can make sense of, okay, what was that? What just happened? And so the loud pop of a PA goes to that kind of like ancient, you know, fight or flight part of our brain. And that's why a horse that uh, that's just, just throwing this out there and I'm not a neurosurgeon, neuroscientist or anything like that. But yeah, I think that loud, sudden, sharp noises can put a horse that is even, you know, that has been hauled everywhere. That's well-trained. It can even put a horse like that on edge. Um, I know the the snap crackle pop of a fractured speaker or bad PA system. I know that makes my skin crawl. I hate that sound. It just makes me want to twitch. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I can't do. When I go to scary movies, I can watch anything on screen, but I have to plug my ears. If I plug my ears, I'm okay. You know, I we can't stand we the jump scares. Did that in a film class I took. We watched. Really? Yes, we watched Alfred Hitchcock. Yep. Without this, we watched it regular first. It's the one with the, the title of the film escapes me right now. The shower scene. Psycho. Psycho. We watched the shower scene with the sound, and then we watched the shower scene without the sound. Completely different experiences. <laughs> it is. And he he's the master of the jump scare of, yeah. you know, you've got the heroine going through the house, doing what you're not supposed to do. Like, hello? Yeah, it's like, get out of the house. But, uh, trigger stacking, trigger stacking. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly that. Yes. And then sees the closet and then the, you hear the violence. They start building that intense, like, you know, rising in, in crescendo of the music. And she puts her hand on the doorknob and opens it. And you hear that kind of, that culmination of the sound. It hits that sharp, high-pitched noise, but then there's nothing there. But it's still like scares the bejesus out of you. And that, that all comes from Hitchcock. Yes. It's all his fault. Anyhow, I'm sorry. That just, yeah. that just came to my <laughs> mind when you said about, so I, I, I'm totally on the same page as you are. I, f- I feel that there are certain types of sounds that are much more likely to trigger any horse who is in 
any state of increased excitability, even if it's only a tiny little bit. And Mustangs, I, in my personal opinion, have never owned one. But just hearing, I get to hear from a lot of people who have Mustangs because lots of our listeners have Mustangs. They tend to keep it to themselves. They can be in a more heightened state of observation and we're, we, we don't know it. They, they hide it so well compared to domesticated horses. Uh, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You're, you're right on yeah. it there, Rita. And, and this reminds me of another uh, funny instance. I was at a reigning show, and there's a line of reigning horses um, that come from this horse known as Colonel Smoking Gun or Gunner. And he's like one of the most famous horses in the industry, and he was deaf, and a lot of his progeny are deaf. And we had one in training uh, where, at this barn where I worked. And he was, I mean, he was definitely deaf. He was completely, did not hear nothing. And we were at a show once and the speaker backfired or whatever you call it. Um, and this horse jumped. And my trainer, my boss looked down at the horse like, what the heck? I thought you were deaf. And um, so even he, I think he could feel it. Um or, you know, if he had like 1%, he was even able to process it. Mm-hmm. And this horse said, like, this horse was so deaf that we had to be careful if putting his fan in his stall because his ears would just like go into the fan because he just put his face right up to the fan. He had no, like, he couldn't really hear the whirring of the fan. Um, so it was interesting that even that horse who can't hear reacted to a speaker. So, yeah. yes, it is definitely within the realm of possibility. Um So she goes on to ask, uh, how do you handle something that unexpectedly bothers your horse, especially with regard to your own thinking and judgment? Um, In all other aspects, this would have been a ho-hum show for Juliet. uh, So I was caught off guard and admit I got a a bit of a deer-in-the-headlight syndrome when my horse was suddenly dancing circles around me. After I unfroze, I got a bit angry because good Lord, Juliet, you're behaving badly and embarrassing me, which we just talked about. When she, when I realized it was the PA system, I started thinking of it more as fear. Perfect. And uh, the shift in my thinking helped me be more empathetic and think a bit more clearly, try to do some groundwork. Um, but she thought doing groundwork was when there was something so scary um, going on was silly. So that did not go well. So she uh, goes on to say that she started just trying to get her to walk and calm her down through walking um, all the, all around the showground, starting further away from the PA system, then getting closer gradually. That's a nice way to do approach and retreat. Um, after all of this process, uh, eventually she was her old self and in between announcements, and she was actually great for our classes. Then we stayed long after our classes were over um, and worked on the walking again. And by the end, she's back to her old self, standing quietly while the loudspeakers were blaring right next to her. Is this just one of those horse things that you need to throw your ego and your plans for the day out the window and go back to treating your horses if she knows nothing? She actually did very well at the show, winning three of the four of her classes, probably because she had way more energy than normal. Um well, first off, I would say don't beat yourself up too badly um, because you still won most of your classes. That's incredible. Um, 
And I really like the thought process that she went through of you have that initial, which I totally go through this all the time, like embarrassment, frustration, bemusement, like what the heck happened? You're normally so cool. Um, And I like that she was able to, okay, I realized that my horse is scared. This is all stuff we were just talking about. I realized my horse was scared. What do I need to do? And then trying to come up with a solution and working on it. And you still save the day. So that's incredible. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, we're working with a living animal. So sometimes things happen and we just have to get through it. Um, and I don't know if you guys have talked about the, uh, is it the decathlon on the Olympics? I won't get into that. Ugh. Too yeah. deeply. Yeah. Ugh. But I think this is the thing that we saw lacking in that event that most horse people understand. If you have worked with horses, sometimes it just happens. And it might be the Olympics. It might be the show you've been looking forward to all week or this trail ride. And you all you wanted to do was go and have fun and enjoy your horse. Or you really thought you were going to win this class. And then something happened. We all know that sometimes that just happens. And the only thing to do is pet your horse. We'll try again tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so when this happens, you you show up away from home somewhere. In this case, for Rita, it was a horse show. And something sets your horse off. Is it something sets your horse off? That's the first thing that happens. The next mm-hmm. thing that happens is... We as humans want to go, what just set you off? Now, in the order of priorities, should we be figuring out what set them off first, or should we be working on getting the horse to mentally come back to you and getting them to do a desired behavior? Where we, I, I want to weigh those two things because... Obviously, if the horse is losing his marbles, we need to get, get him to come back so he doesn't get hurt or hurt someone else. But let's just say it's the horse is just being naughty. They're jigging, they're bouncing, they're misbehaving, but they're not being dangerous. That's happened, This and this has happened to everybody. So when this happens, what? where do I need to prioritize? Do I need to do a little bit of each at the same time? What's that going to look like? I think in the immediate aftermath of something like this happening, you can probably reasonably process something scared my horse. We need to get things under control. And, you know, that's about as far as you need to get as far as figuring out the why um, in the in the beginning. And, yeah, I would say you want to prioritize getting your horse's attention back on you, getting him back to a better state. And then once things are kind of calmed down, you can start, okay, what happened? Why, why did this thing, um, you know, create reactivity in an otherwise pretty well-trained and chilled out horse? And okay, what can we do now that my, you know, I've got my horse back under control, but she still looks kind of up and we need to kind of process this and work through this. And that's when you could start doing the real detective work of, you know, maybe I need to take her away and create some distance. Maybe, you know, um, maybe I need to work on these simple exercises and get the focus back on me. Um, but I think in the beginning, all that's needed as far as the why is some things happen. I have reactivity. I need to get that attention back. Um, and as far as like particular groundwork to do, um, so all groundwork instance, is created equal. 
Exactly. So um, in this particular, and, and every type of groundwork has its place in time. Um, so in this particular, particular instance and it, you know it does sound like she was on the ground with her horse when this happened um i would focus less on groundwork uh, like circular type groundwork like lunging and circles and trotting and cantering because i feel like that revs up your horse's um fight or flight system even more yeah like in the horse's mind, they're thinking, run away, run away. So if you start moving them in the circle, they're like, run away, run away, run away. And they <laughs> That's can what I'm doing. get way <laughs> ahead of themselves. Yeah. And just keep going and going and going. And, and, um, even if you did that to the point of getting them tired, they can still be afraid and tired, which is just a not fun combination. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I do that has really worked in these situations, and it is one of the very few useful things I picked up at my very first horse training job with a clinician who shall remain nameless. But um, when this person would do these big um, events where they would have several demos and people bring their horse and say, my horse does this and this and this, and he would work with them for an hour and a half and get the horse better and explain what he was doing. One of the first things that he always did um, in terms of groundwork uh, was he'd get the horse's attention. So, and this is something I find incredibly useful to this day. So what would always, how these demos would start out is it was usually um, someone would bring in this horse and this horse has probably not been off the property very much, if ever. So the horse has already got some challenges and now we're like in front of 3000 people in this huge stadium, the horse is by himself. So what he's doing as the poor owner is trying to answer questions and explain what her horse is doing is the horse is running around her in circles and she's trying to, you know, answer the questions, um, or explain things about her horse. So she's just trying to stay out of the horse's way and maybe pass the leader up from one hand to the other. And the horse is like looking around and screaming and moving around in circles. And, uh, the first thing that this trainer would do is he would ask the horse to do two things. And those things were, look at me, stay out of my space. Now he was pretty aggressive with it. Um, I don't think you have to be particularly aggressive. I will be very firm on holding my ground and not letting the horse jump on top of me. I will let the horse, I will do whatever I need to do to say, hey, you need to get back right now because you're too close. And I don't want you to do something and not me be collateral damage. Um, but you're giving your horse two very simple, very doable things that they can do. And you're not demanding perfection. So as long as you are putting your eyes on me, and you're staying out of my space, you know, that's okay. Everything else you do is okay. So sometimes the horse would do that and kind of like dance a little sideways. As long as you're putting your eyes on me, that's fine. You don't have to stand perfectly still. You don't have to have your head on the ground. Just put your eyes on me and stay out of my space. And for a horse that is in a really like heightened state of fear, even those two very simple things can be a huge challenge. But that's where you're going to start. And if your horse is like freaking out, moving all around you, you know, we're not going to like be looking for things like, let's go work on our lead changes. We're going <laughs> to try to get, con you know, control of the situation. And what would always happen, it might take a few minutes, five, even 10 minutes of just constantly reminding the horse, stay back there, stay, stay out of my space and look at me, stay out of my space, look at me. And you just, and every time the horse finds that this is the most important thing. 
when the horse is doing the two things on your checklist, he's out of my space. He's looking at me. You're going to release pressure. Don't pull on that lead rope. Um, you know, give that horse release and let him know this is where you're going to be safe. And for most horses, um, especially in the horses in these demos that were just, you know, this was a huge challenge for them to even be in the arena. Uh, they might find that safe space of giving you focus and staying out of your space for a second. I'm still going to release like you found it. And as soon as they jump out of it, I will just remind them, Hey, stay back there. Put your eyes on me. Stay back there. Put your eyes on me just over and over and over again and releasing every time they get there. And what would invariably happen is after a while, the horse would just go, Oh, <sighs> lick, chew, lick, chew, lick, chew. And they would like, you just release all of the tension. It was incredible. Um, the change that you would see in that horse after getting through that period. And now, okay, now that we're here, we're in this safe place where you've, you've let off a lot of this tension. Now we can start, you know, doing other things. Um, but that start, even if it's a well-trained horse, so if I, if I was in this position, I'm with uh, my Mustang Remington at a show, something happens, he's dancing around me, that's the process I would use. I would say, hey, don't, don't do that on top of me and put your eyes on me. And that's all we're going to do. And we'll do that for as long as it takes for you to come down. And uh, every time you find that spot of put your eyes on me, and stay out of my space. I'm going to release pressure. I'm going to loosen that lead rope. I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You're safe right here. And um, that is what I would do to get them back on me. And then anytime I had that reactiveness happen again, the speaker pops again, that's where we're going to go. And this is actually something I practice at home. This was actually the very first lesson I did with Remy as a wild Mustang. Um, I didn't ask him to back out of my space because I didn't need to. He was wild. He did not want to come near me. Um, so I didn't have to say, get out of my space. Uh, but I did the first time I went in the pen with him. I'm like, Hey, look at me. And it took very little pressure. Like uh, oftentimes just me walking into the pen, that Mustang doesn't want to take their eyes off of you because they don't know what you're about. They're going to keep their eyes on you. And that's where I release. And so a lot of times if you practice this at home and you can even practice, you can even create some stress like with a tarp or with a flag um, where, or, you know, maybe on an obstacle course or you've got things waving about, you practice this at home. What you can find happens is you have a horse that might still spook. We can't always wipe that spook out of them. It's, it's in their brain. It's going to happen. Um, but I've had this happen before where something happens, the horse goes, <gasps> and then looks at me. What do you want? What do you want me to do? This is my safe place. This is the place I'm supposed to go when I'm scared. There we go. So <clears throat> similarly, this can happen when you're on your horse. You go to a place, you hop on your horse, you go to do your warm-up, and the horse is uncharacteristically distracted. Just mm -hmm. he, he doesn't seem to be able to focus on you and your aids. How might that pan out if you're already in the stirrups and you're doing your warm-up so that you can get your horse back to focusing on you without simply riding his legs off or throwing him on a lunge line to let him run his legs off? What might that appear to be? 
That's a terrific question. So there are a couple things that I do, and it depends on the horse's level of training and how upset he is. So let's say it's a greener horse or a horse that's in a pretty heightened state of, man, I really need to get control of this situation right now. Uh, My go-to is yielding the hindquarters. And the reason I like to yield the hindquarters is the horse is still able to move. I'm not taking his ability to move away from him. So that can provide a lot of comfort for the horse because their legs are their lifeline. They need their legs to get away from danger. So when something scary happens, they want to move. So by yielding the hindquarters, I'm like, you can still move your feet. I'm not going to make you not do that. Um, But when their hind legs, as they're yielding, their one hind leg is crossing in front of the other. It is incredibly difficult for them to do dangerous things like bolting or rearing or bucking um, if their hind legs are crossing. And uh, how I will do this is, let's say I'm sitting on my horse and someone else falls off their horse and everyone's going, loose horse. And for whatever reason, I don't think I can dismount in time. I'm going to take my horse's nose to one side and I'm going to put them in a hind quarter yield. And um, if they, if the horse was like trying to move, I just keep asking them to yield their hind quarters by taking their nose to one side and just um, filter that movement into this disengaging the hind quarters. And then I will wait till the horse, um, their feet come to a, so- a complete stop. And then I want them to soften to my rein. So once they kind of give to that rein, I'm going to release them and say, that's where I want you. Now let's say they go, Oh no, you, I'm still pretty scared. And they want to move again. I'll take their nose around again. I might take it to the other side this time. So I'll just tip their nose to one side, you know, stay really solid in my seat and have them, t- you know, m- take that movement into a hindquarter yield, and, and I wait for them to stop moving those feet, and I wait for them to stop to soften to that rein, and then I release. Um, so that is something I would do if it was a pretty green horse that doesn't have a lot of education under saddle, or it's a like it's just there a cannon exploded, and it's even my trained horse is like I have to run right now. That's probably what I would do there. Now, let's say it's not quite as scary as all that. My horse is pretty well educated. Um, I like to use this. uh, It's not really an analogy, but uh, Buck Brandeman talks about riding a horse in your rectangle, which has been... It sounds really simple, It's been, but it's been immensely helpful to me over the years, which means, you know, you've got this imaginary rectangle around your horse and he needs to stay contained within the front and back sides and, you know, and the borders of that rectangle on either side. So sometimes your horse wants to bust out of the side of the rectangle. Let's say your horse wants to um, run to the right. He, he wants to shimmy sideways. So I'll take my aids that I've already taught my horse and say, hey, let's side pass back to the left. And then once he gets back into my figurative rectangle, I'm going to release. This is where I want you. Now let's say now he wants to bow to the left and he side passes to the left. I'm going to take my aids and say, hey, side pass back to the right, get back in that rectangle. And the important thing is when he finds that imaginary zone I've created for him, I'm going to release and say, that's where I want you. Let's say he wants to go forward and go through the bit. Um, unless he's really panicked, um, you know, where I don't really want to pull too hard on a horse that's really, really upset. That's where I'd go back to my hindquarter yield. But if he wants to kind of go through the, go through my aids and go forward, I'm going to work on, let's back up and get back to that rectangle. And I'm going to wait till you soften and you find that rectangle again, and I'm going to release. 
let's say he's a little pokey, he wants to lag behind. Well, I'm going to push him forward and then release once he gets to that spot. And there's something about teaching your horse where that little zone is and releasing him every time he gets there. It's like a sedative. Um, I've had horses that were really keyed up and I just focused on this is where you're safe. This is where I want you. And they immediately just kind of go, ah, okay. So and they're ready to go. In this case, I'm just, I'm watching the movie play in my little head of this happening because this is something I experience all too frequently with Nigel. And I struggle with it because I let the emotion get into it. And I need to, I need to put that movie in my head whenever he gets like that. The onus is on the human being to create a sensible, understandable rectangle. Because when this happens, and I think it's, I personally find it most difficult with the well-trained horse, because that's when you go, good golly, we've done this, right? And you you get very emotional about it. And I know for me, I tend to overreact. I make the rectangle way too small, and then I change it, and then I make it into a triangle, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not consistent enough, so the horse doesn't find the relief that he should be finding. All he does is burn off energy safely, and that's not the goal. The goal is to get the horse in a mental state where he doesn't feel the need to burn off that excess energy because he's no longer in that fearful flight or flight state. So, okay, I'm playing that movie in my head. I'm going to make that rectangle around my horse, and I'm going to quietly and simply and clearly indicate to my horse, oh, you're outside the edge here. Let's move you here. That's where the edge is. You're outside the edge here. Let's move. And I need to focus not on you're outside the edge. I need to focus on here is the edge. Good job. Because going back to the beginning of the conversation, don't focus on what the horse is doing wrong. Focus on what you want the horse to do that is right. Because I tend to be the other way. So ding, 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 my takeaway for the day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, it, it when the horse kind of both on the ground and under saddle, when and, and this is just good riding and groundwork, period. This doesn't have to be just an emergency situation where we're trying to get control. I practice this stuff at home daily. This is the foundation of all the body control I do under saddle. And this is how you get that horse that walks out of a stall ready to go. Like you go to the show, you get him out of the stall, you, you saddle him up, you put your foot in the stirrup and all you got to worry about is just getting him properly warmed up to get his muscles warm. And then you can go right into the show. This is how you get to that kind of like peak performance of is, is this body control. It's not just about being able to get your horse to do the pretty maneuvers. It's about showing your horse this is where every everything's going to be safe. You want your horse to know that being with you, whether it's under saddle and he's within your aids or on the ground and he's focused with you and he's near you, you you want them to look for you. You you want that you want them to realize being with me is a really good deal. And that's why I use, you know, you've got to be really good with that release of pressure and you have to give it to them. Even if you know they're going to fail in the next second, give it to them <laughs> when they're being good, you know. And eventually it's going to start sticking in their head. They're going to be pinging all around like a ping pong ball. And they're going to realize every time I hit this zone right here, things feel pretty good. So maybe I'll start going there. And if you practice, practice, practice this a lot at home in a really calm environment and, you know, create a few stressful situations where it's really controlled and you're going to say, hey, I'm going to bring out this plastic bag. 
It's okay if you're scared. I know you're going to want to move your feet. I'm going to show you where to go. This is what you do if you're scared. I call them fire drills. Um, then Ooh, when the scary put that, thing put, happens, put that on your list. We're going to do a list of fire drills on a show coming up. We're going to put that on the list. I like oh, that. yeah. It is the best thing. Um, cool. And yeah. And, and so you show them, hey, I know you're going to probably get scared. And it's okay if you want to move your feet. Totally understand. Here's what you do to get safe. Mm-hmm. Um you you will find your horse going to that that zone even before you ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, we're going to take a quick break here because um, somebody else who's focusing on not on what's going wrong, but what's going right is total saddle fit because they're focusing on what's going right with how your cinch fits. So we're going to hear a little bit about the total saddle fit shoulder relief cinch and girth. They make it for every type of saddle imaginable. And when we come back, we're going to do another question. Woohoo! Well, Total Saddle Fit has the cinch that you've been looking for for your Western dressage saddle. The shoulder relief cinch actually changes the position and angle of the billets to prevent the saddle tree from interfering with the shoulder. The center of the cinch is set forward to sit in the horse's natural girth groove, while the sides of the cinch are cut back to meet the billets two inches behind where the horse's natural girth groove lies. This brings the latigos from angling forward to becoming perpendicular to the ground, which reduces the saddle's tendency to be pulled forward into the shoulders. With horses that have shoulder interference without angled billets, it simply moves the billets back to keep the saddle further away from the shoulders. The secondary benefit to this shape is the cutback at the elbows. This gives more room for elbow movement as well and prevents galls in the elbow area. You can find the shoulder relief cinch at totalsaddlefit.com. That's totalsaddlefit.com. And we're back with Mary Kitts Miller, who is here the second Thursday of every month to chat about all things training. And what is our second question for the day? Okay, um, I'm going to change course a little bit and go to the question from Carl, and he wants to know about transitioning into neck reining from a two-handed snaffle, which is a great question. And um, this is a question a lot of Western riders have, and it can be kind of this um, not really scary thing to think about, but this sort of unknown, like how in the heck am I going to get my horse whom I ride with two hands to start riding one handed? Um, and I found, uh, over, you know, many years, I finally realized, Oh, this is actually really easy. Now let's stop Um, right there because those of us who are primarily English riders, this is an enormous mystery. So I'm going to listen carefully. It's magic. So, so yeah, this is typically a Western thing. Um, yeah, I have seen it in other disciplines like Doma Vaquera and, and it is just be, it, it is good to be able to take your horse in one hand, say if you're riding on the trail and you want to work a gate without having to dismount your horse. Um, it's, it's good to be able to move maneuver him with one hand. Um, 
So in the Western events, um, when you get the horse to the bridal stage, meaning we've moved from the snaffle and we're working with uh, like a leverage bit or a spade bit, the the epitome of the Western excellence is being able to ride your horse one-handed and using uh, a term that I find in a lot of performance rule books, willingly guided. So the horse is just with you. You've got the reins in one hand, you've got some slack in the rein and the horse just looks like he's anticipating your every move. Um, and of course, the practicality of this is, you know, a lot of Western events and, and Western lifestyle, you theoretically are going to be roping cattle. So in order to handle your rope and, um, you know, work that cow on a rope, you need to have your right hand free. Um, and then in your left, typically, you could be either way, um, you're going to be managing your horse. So you need to be able to ride your horse one-handed because you might have to rope livestock or open gates out on the range. You never know. Uh, so when I showed reining horses, when I worked for reining trainers, we would typically ride the horse for their two-year-old year in the snaffle. And then by the time you are going to the NRHA Futurity, which is at the end of the horse's three-year-old year, you're showing one-handed. Um, so when I first started, I would kind of not really think about having to ride one-handed until it was time the to change the horse to the leverage bit. So I would just ride all year two-handed. And then by the time it was like, oh, I've got to start putting a bridle bit in your mouth and teaching you neck reining, I wouldn't start it until then, until like their three-year-old year. Um, and I mean, we would get through it and it'd be fine. There'd be a little bit of an awkward timing, uh, but it would, it would work out in the end. But then I learned that oh no, you can start right away. You can start a few rides in. You don't have to have a special bit to ride one-handed um, because when it's done well, you're teaching the horse to work off of the signal of the rein laying across their neck. So you don't necessarily need to pull on their mouth um, in order to get them to ride one-handed. So um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I ride one-handed in my hackamore all the time. You don't really need a special bit to get the horse riding one-handed. So um, how I start doing it is uh, as I'm teaching my two-year-old or any horse the basics of the snaffle, this rein means go left, this means go right, and I'm using my leg aids um, and my reins to get the horse to go forwards, backwards, left, and right, you can start put just putting the reins in one hand to do very simple things. So um, as I'm just riding through my pasture, maybe I'll put the reins in one hand um, and just see how he navigates. If he gets in trouble and confused, I can just put the reins back in. Uh, I can just go back to two-handed, work him through it, and then go back to one-handed again. And because uh, for any given maneuver, let's say I'm turning left, I don't just use my reins to turn left. Uh, the first thing I do when I turn left is I'm going to look to the left. And whether you realize it or not, that actually starts positioning your body. So I turn my head, that kind of adjusts my neck. My shoulders might also turn. That kind of twists my spine. I'm sure that affects my hips. And so the horse can feel all that happening, even if he can't see you turn your head left. Um, and even just me thinking about going left, that my body will, like, subconsciously start to change. Like this is how it is when I'm going left and the horse is going to be able to pick up on that. Um, so I look to the left. I like to signal with my rein first. Um, some people like to use their legs first, but I like to signal with my rein first. And then I use my leg aids. 
if you're riding Western, I typically, uh, that typically means you're going to bring your right leg a little forward up by the horse's cinch and you're going to create a little bit of pressure, um, with your outside leg. So if I'm turning left, yeah, that's my right leg. Um, and my inside leg, depending on the type of turn I'm doing, I might move it back uh, by the rib cage a little bit to create some roundness. Or if I want the horse to do more of a pivot, I'll actually open up my inside leg. And that signals to the horse, I'm giving room for your shoulder to kind of sweep to the left. So I've got a lot of different cues going on that are saying turn left, turn left. So um, uh, you can use all of those extra cues to get the horse to start understanding a neck rein. So I'll look to the left, lay my neck rein across and use the same leg cues I've, I've used with the horse riding two-handed. And a lot of times the horse can connect those dots like, oh, this feels like we're going left. And they can start to interpret me laying that outside rein across their neck as, oh, that must be the cue to turn left. Now let's say they don't figure it out. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and pick up on that left rein now and say, hey, this is what I wanted you to do and then release when you do it. So turning, I like to do a lot of serpentines um, doing this kind of work. So in the beginning, when I teach my horse to serpentine, I'm teaching them with the direct rein. Left rein means go left, right rein means go right. And then I'm also setting my leg cues accordingly. When I'm going to the left, I have my legs this way. When we go back to the right, I'm going to switch my cues, have my legs go that way. If you practice enough of these big old lazy serpentines at the walk, um, pretty soon your horse, you, you using your reins less and less, and the horse just starts to kind of really mesh with your cues and he, he doesn't t need very many, very much rain aid at all. And that's where you can start. Well, can I put the reins in one hand and do it that way? Um, can I get my horse to back up with one hand? Can I get my horse to side pass with one hand? And really the secret is just try it. And if it doesn't work, oh, okay, well, I'll go to two hands and you know, then next time I'll try it and see if it works then. There you go. Simple as that. So it's always been, again, I'm a primarily English writer. It always seems to me that the the neck rein thing was more about the horse understanding all of the other aids well enough that when you moved your hand in order, let's say we're going left, you move your hand such that the outside rein lays against the horse's neck it's less about that rain laying across the horse's neck than all of the aids are saying, turn left. All you've done is taken one of the aids that he knew initially, the inside rain, and you gradually fade it away. Exactly, exactly. And this is something I learned with the reining horses is for any given maneuver I do, I have about four ways to cue it. And by having several different consistent cues to go into the thing I want my horse to do, um, it allows you not to be too heavy on any one aid. And you also have several fail safes in case one aid's not working so well in the show pin. So for instance, with the stop, I don't just pull on my horse to stop him like you see in like the John Wayne movies and the horse's head goes upside down and it doesn't look very pretty. Um, it has to look like butter. Like it's just the horse has to melt into that stop. And how I get that is not by just having one cue. Um, so... 
for to teach my horse to do like a sliding stop, for instance, I say the word whoa, and then I relax my seat. So uh, I should be able to get my horse to stop off of just my seat if I want it to. So I say whoa, relax my seat, and then my legs actually come off of the horse's side as an exaggeration of listen, my leg's not on you anymore. Um, you are, you've given, I'm giving you the freedom to stop. And then that rain actually comes in after all that as like a supplement. There is, I'm not dependent on the rain to get that horse stop. It's just a way to get my horse to soften into that stop and lift his shoulder as he comes to a stop. So he can give me this really nice balanced stop. And like I said, it's also kind of a fail save. Let's say my horse heard a crackly PA system and they're a little amped when we're running down to do our stop. If I say, whoa, nothing happens, and I sit down and relax, and nothing happens, and I take my legs off, and nothing happens. Okay, I've got the rain to save my life here. Uh, it might not be pretty, but we'll get them stopped. Um, so all of those uh, extra aids helps you to be light on every aid and cue that you're using, and it also gives your horse a context of, oh, we're definitely stopping now. And I know this <laughs> because my person said, whoa, and they relaxed. And I practice these cues all together, and I also practice them all separately. So sometimes with steering my horse around, for instance, or with stopping, I'll say, can I just use the rein? Will you listen to just the rein? I'm not really going to change my body. I'm not going to add my leg aids. Let's see if you can figure it out with just the rain. And, um, you know, it might get confusing and a little awkward, but then the horse, you, you get through it with the horse. And then I'll say, okay, what if I just don't use any rain? Can I just get you to steer around with my legs? How does that work? Or can I get you to stop simply if I take my legs off of your side? Or can I get you to stop or turn just off my seat? And it's a great way to experiment. And you are developing all these cues separately. And then when you put them all together, the whole thing is so much better and softer and clearer to the horse. Interesting. That's very interesting. And I'm, again, playing a little movie in my head. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to experiment with that a little bit. I'm going to try because I, I ride one horse all the time. So I kind of know what we do and what works and what works well. I'm going to try practicing with just one aid at a time. And I also love me some serpentines and experiment with, see what, but that's what that's going to do is tell me which of my aids are most accurate, which of my aids are best understood, which of my aids I need to refine. And in my case, usually that means making them smaller because I'm one of those riders that just tends to be, I tend to be just very heavy with all of my aids. I'm just, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so I'm going to play around with that a little bit. I think that'll be a fun and interesting exercise. And that brought to mind when we were talking about that, one of the things that I struggle with is opening and closing gates. I'm not very coordinated. Nigel's not very good at it. It takes a lot of thought and carefulness, and we're neither of us are good at thought or carefulness. Uh, so we, I've been trying to break down the whole process of opening and closing a gate from on board a horse into its smaller parts, uh, because you often say how you need to chunk it down to get both horse and rider to understand it better. And for some time now, we've been practicing backing out the gate when we leave our working area, whether it's the field or an arena. The gate's already open. We're just backing out. Mm -hmm. But then I would have to get off to close the gate because closing the gate after the fact just ended our ride on an uncomfortable and unhappy note. Not how I want to finish my ride. 
So what I started doing is as I backed out the gate, I started going up and I would stand parallel to the gate to back out versus just going through the middle of it, which was mm-hmm. what, what was my initial, oh, I want to be right in the middle so I don't accidentally back your butt into anything. Well, then we got really good at that. So, wow, let's stand parallel to the gate. And I found that the first dozen or so times I asked him to do that, he did not want to stand close to the gate and back in a straight line. It obviously made him uncomfortable. He immediately zhuzhed himself away. So, well, a little at a time. Let's stand three and a half feet from that gate and back out through the hole. Got good at that. Now let's stand two feet from that gate and walk and back straight out of the hole. And got better and better and better at that. And then what I did is I line, we, and he would voluntarily do it because we always do that at the end of the ride. It's like, oh, we're going to go back to the barn. I want to do this. We can stand parallel to the gate close enough that my stirrup can touch the gate. And I could, and as soon as I would lean over to try to touch the gate, he would sashay his way away from the gate because he'd le- feel me lean over and he felt the need to do something about that. And then we went from there. And it's interesting because now three months later, we've been doing this as, as we ride in fields and arenas with gates that I can now line him up at the gate, lean over, hold the gate. We take one step back, one step over, one step back, one step over. It's not going to win a trail class at Congress. I'm sorry, but it's an effective. And when we get finished, he goes, I did a good job. Give me a pat in the back. And for him, that's a cookie. Uh, And it was very interesting how I had to break it down even smaller pieces than I thought. Just the act of standing next to a gate and leaning over for him was a separate piece that I had to work through. So you're, all of these shows that I do with you are actually having an effect. I'm getting to be a better writer. Yay, me. Yay. Well, good. <laughs> um, yeah, and that that's such incredible work to do with the horse. And that kind of stuff right there will do a million more things for your horse than lunging him in a circle for half an hour. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, that'll lunging give, has In, in Nigel's place. case, that'll just give him sore, sore siphles. That's all it's going to do. <laughs> Exactly. And in some horses cases, it just revs them up. Um, and well, that's like with my dog, I've had a lot of experience. Malinois owners tell me you need to do scent work with her. You need to do agility work with her because these dogs, they're like Arabian horses. They can go all day. And if you just run and run and run and run them, um, like a horse, guess what? They get fitter. So now you have to run them for three hours. Now you have to show up at the show a week ahead of time to start lunging your horse. <laughs> but doing things that turn on their brain, like, you know, hey, I know you want to go home, and but let's let's work on this arena gate for a few minutes. That is like, like it's like a sedative. It really gets their brain engaged and it makes them think. And it will have far-reaching effects beyond your ability to open gates. Um, it's easy to just think, well, I'm not really going to go out on the trail. I'm not a Western rider. I don't need to work gates. Um, but the process of going through all the things you need to do to get that gate worked is so good for your horse. And it can get their brain on a task 
sometimes a horse sees a gate as a, oh, this is just where I go through the pasture and run like an idiot to go see my buddies. Or we go out the arena gate before I get to go back to the barn and eat. So their brain's like on autopilot thinking, you know, can't wait to eat my hay and they're pulling on the reins. But if you're like, hey, let's just think about this for a little bit and you do this little brain teaser with them and you're working on things like desensitizing and we need to be able to back and we need to be able to move our shoulders and our hips and we need to be soft and we need to side pass and all of those things are going to make a great riding horse. Let's work on this for about five minutes and it gets their brain back on you. Um, and it's so good for them mentally. There we go. See, and we, and we came full circle, getting your horse's brain back on you. And as usual, got my gray matter really warmed up today. So when people want to appropriately stalk Mary Kitzmiller because they want to attend a clinic, organize a clinic, get some really cool artwork, have a horse trained, etc., where are they going to do that? You can find me on my Facebook page, Mary Kitzmiller Horsemanship. Um, I'm also on Instagram. If you want to check out our artwork, uh, my mom and I have a company called Troublemaker Trading Company. You can also find us on Facebook and Shopify. I believe that site is uh, troublemakertradingcompany.myshopify.com. Um, and those are the best places. So are you out and about in the world doing a clinics that, at this point? Are you able to go out and about and do that? Or are you still kind of on lockdown? Um, so I don't have any clinics on the schedule right now. I'm always interested in if someone wants to host a clinic. Um, I am focusing right now on, um, if it doesn't get canceled, I will be doing a freestyle at the, um, Fort Worth stock show with my horse, Remy. They're doing a Mustang freestyle event, which I'm super excited about. I have a really cool idea in the works. Uh, so that's kind of my main focus right now. And then we're, uh, we're revving up into the holiday season with, uh, the troublemaker trading company stuff, working on artwork and jewelry. Uh, so that's what I'm doing at the moment next year. I hope to hit the ground and, uh, do more shows. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to clinics and lessons. So if anyone's interested, they're more than free to contact me. There we go. And we will see you again next month. 